Well, good morning, church. I want to welcome you all this evening, uh, or this evening, this morning. And, uh, <clears throat> well, um, the, uh, the, the season that we're beginning is the season of Lent. And uh, as you've already heard, we started that this past Wednesday with our Ash Wednesday service. Pastor Drew uh, spoke at that service, did an amazing job setting the tone uh, for us. And as he ended that service, he offered a question, uh, a question that I'm hoping that uh, we'll continue to consider throughout this season. What is God inviting me to lay down in order to be made whole? What is God inviting me to lay down in order to be made whole? Uh, the season of Lent is 40 days, not counting Sundays. It is a uh, reminiscent of the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness uh, during his temptation, which is actually the focus, and I'll speak about that in just a minute. And it also reminds us of the 40 years that the Hebrews wandered in the wilderness before they came to the promised land. And uh, as best we know, this, uh, a season of preparation, maybe not exactly like we observe it today, was in place somewhere around the year 150, 175 A.D., and the church has observed a period of preparation to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is a, uh, a celebration that's not just centuries old, but over almost, almost two millennia old, two, almost 2,000 years. And so, uh, but but it's, it's a rough season, and it's a hard season, and if I do my job right, you will be angry at me the next six weeks. And uh, so let's pray that I do my job right. Um, the, uh, at the beginning of every Lent, um, there's a three-year cycle that the church uses uh, in observing this. The church has given it a wonderfully ingenious name. It's year A, year B, and year C. Yeah, we're not so good at ingeniousness, are we? So this is year C. And uh, the story that begins every Lent, the Bible story that begins every Lent, is the temptation of Christ. And in year A, it's Matthew's version. In year B, it's Mark's version. And in year C, it's Luke's version. And this is year C, so we're looking at Luke's version. And uh, it's, it's, it's not my favorite. Mark's my favorite. I love the temptation story in Mark. So you come back in two years and you'll hear that perspective. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, and uh, beginning in the first verse, this is the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Luke chapter 4, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And he was very hungry. I love how the Bible understates things. The devil said to him, to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, 
it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Well, as we begin this uh, message and this series of messages through the season of Lent, I want to, uh, first of all, uh, begin with a preface statement. All over the world today, on the first Sunday of Lent, this passage of Scripture is being read. Not in every church, but in a great number of churches. And preachers are going to step behind the pulpit, and they're going to preach a message to you. Now, before I say something about that, let me just share with you one of the things that's significantly important to me, to Ike Nicholson, and to a lot of uh, folks who come from the Reformed tradition of which the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, comes out of, here's a revelation. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about me. The Bible is about God. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. The Bible is about the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things that I do, and it's, a, it's something we have to discipline ourselves to do, because, you know, we always say, and, and, and I'm not trying to beat up on anybody, but we say, you know, I'm going to look at the Bible and I'm going to see if the Lord has a word for me. And, and I understand that, and I'm not being a, a meanie by this, but one of the things that I hope that we'll discipline ourselves is, is that when we read the Bible, that we'll be looking for Jesus. We want to see Jesus in everything we read in Scripture. Whether it's the creation story, whether it's the, the, the King David, whether it's the Apostle Paul, everything that I see in the Bible, I want to see Jesus. And so back to the other preachers, and I'm, I'm not beating up on them. I, they're, they're good folks. I love them. They're my colleagues. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with this sermon, but the message is going to be something like this. Here's how you and I can overcome temptations in our life. And I'm here to share with you, this could be a 15-second sermon, something I know nothing about. And the summary would be this. The best way to overcome temptations in life is to be grounded in the Word of God. Shall we have a prayer and go on with our day? And there's nothing wrong with that. That's true. I believe that that's true. But I don't believe, and it's not just me, there's lots of other folks that believe this too, They just don't get a lot of publicity, I suppose, that this temptation story is not trying to teach you and me how to overcome temptations in our life. Now, you can pick up some lessons to it, but that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is to gaze more deeply into the heart of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a painful, difficult thing to do. 
this past week, my wife had to go, and the kids went back to Kentucky to my, her grandfather passed away and they had their service. And so she and the kids went back for the service. I stayed here. And it was amazing coming home at night, the silence that was in the house. The glorious, I mean, the terrible, <laughs> terrible silence that was in the house. And while my wife is wrangling three kids through airports. God loves her more than he loves me, apparently. You know, one of the things that I'm always reminded of is to you who are parents, do you know who will have the biggest impact on the life of your kids as to how your children understand and see God? You. They will understand and see God the way you are a mom or a dad in their life. This has been true in my own life. Much of how I understood God uh, is uh, based on how my relationship with my father was. Now, don't get me wrong. My dad was my hero. I love my father. He's gone on to be with the Lord, but my dad was my hero in life. But the worst parts of my life were when he and I were in the car together alone. (laughs) That deafening silence that was in the car. Because my dad was very demanding and and very disciplined, and, uh, you know, my entire life was a Marine Corps uh, boot camp. My entire childhood was that way. But, you know... I mean, I'm not going to make uh, defenses to that. It just was what it was. And unfortunately, for many folks, that kind of uncomfortableness is present when we think about being with the Lord alone. Now, some of you may love that. It may be a glorious time. But there are also some folks in this room, and I'm speaking to you, not the other folks who got their life squared away, to the rest of us who don't have our lives squared away. It can be difficult to sit in the silence during Lent with the Lord. What's he going to say? What's he going to point out? What don't I want the Lord to know about my life? Are there things in my life that I know the Lord's going to bring up that I know they need to be addressed, but it's just really uncomfortable? And you see, that's part of the purpose of Lent, is to force us into those moments, to force us into those moments of realness with our Father, our Father in heaven. And see, what are those things in our life that we need to lay down so that he can make us whole? I want to talk a little bit about this, uh, the preface of this, of this passage about where Jesus was. <coughs> Jesus goes into the wilderness immediately after his baptism. Now, over the years, I've baptized lots of folks, and, and I really appreciate the church. The church cheers and applauds and gives God glory and praise that this person has come to faith and been obedient unto baptism. But it's always been a frightening time for me. Why? Because just like in our lesson today, the evil one, the devil, and in the text here in Luke, the Greek is diablos or or the devil, literally the devil. The devil comes to us. The powers of darkness come to us in those moments immediately after that moment of celebration. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's because the church is... Great, this person has been obedient unto baptism. They're good. Let's turn to the other folks who still wander in darkness and relieve the newly baptized off to fend for themselves. I always have prayed and encouraged folks after we've raised them out of the waters of baptism, out of spiritual death into spiritual life. Listen, at no other time in these people's lives do they need the support and prayer of you, the church, because it's in that moment that the powers of darkness always seem to come. And that's when they came to Jesus. 
The other thing that's happening when they come to Jesus is it is in those moments of weakness. He's gone 40 days without eating. Now, this is a season of fasting. I don't think many of us are going to spend the next 40 days fasting every meal. But Jesus has not eaten anything for 40 days. In that physical weakness, in that desert by himself, the devil has come. Because the devil always comes in moments of weakness. No general that I know of, and having read history, has ever looked at the enemy and said, well, look at all of the battalions of men and the cannons that are on that side of the lines. Hey, guys, let's attack there. No. We always attack where people are the weakest, where the army is the weakest. And the powers of darkness attack me and you in those places of weakness. And this is why it's important to know ourselves. This is why it's important to to be painfully honest with ourselves and with God, to allow God, to ask God, to beg and plead that God would show us our weaknesses. Some of those weaknesses may be just merely physical. But for many of us, those weaknesses are spiritual, emotional, and according to our own personalities. What is weak in our personalities? What is it that we hunger for and long for that we think is, if we can get it satiated, is a strength, but in the eyes of God, it's our greatest weakness. Whether it's control, whether it's power, whether it's security, whether it's the absence of fear. The devil comes to Jesus in his moment of physical weakness. And there Jesus sits. In the wilderness for 40 days, by himself with the Lord, thinking about the life that is ahead of him which incidentally is only three years. He's only got three years left. He knows what lays ahead of him. He knows the emptiness. He knows the challenges. He knows the problems. In, his midst, in, in the midst of his weakness, the devil comes to him. Now, with that preparation, now let's go look and see how Jesus and the devil engage in this conversation. Now, like I told you earlier, this story is in all three of the first Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, called the Synoptic Gospels. I've already shared with you, I love Mark the best. Matthew and Luke are probably the closest, except the the temptations are in a different order. I actually prefer the the order in Matthew. It it fits better in a sermon, but, but we got Luke this year, so we just have to deal with it. It's good to deal with it when we, we, we need to deal with things we don't want to deal with. And so when Jesus comes, I mean, sorry, when the devil comes to Jesus, he, in the midst of his hunger, he says, this is easy, turn the stone into bread. Now, a superficial reading of this just says that Jesus is trying to satiate his physical hunger. But there's more that's being said here, and I hope that as we walk through this with you, that you'll go home, you'll look at some of the other texts that I'm going to mention to you, you'll prayerfully consider it. If you're in a small group, I pray all of you will be. That's the greatest and best way to engage in this stuff, to, 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 to delve deeper into it. But what the devil is saying to Jesus when he asks him, when he, when he encourages him to turn this, this, this stone into bread, is that in the bread, Satan reminds Jesus of human faithlessness. Now, how do I know that? Well, I don't just pull it out of my head. I get it from what Jesus says back to him. The things that Jesus says back to the devil is a hint 
for us to understand the context of the temptation. Jesus speaks back to him, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, does Jesus say that? Well, yes, Jesus says that, but it was actually said before Jesus. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write that down. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. This afternoon or at some time this week at work, during lunch, during a break, look up these passages of Scripture. Familiarize yourself with the context of the verse that Jesus is quoting back to the devil. And Jesus says to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone. It is the exact quote that Moses said to the people. And the context of that quote back in Deuteronomy is this. You remember the story. The Hebrews come out of bondage, out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness, and they're complaining. I know no one complains, here anyway, but they're complaining. What are they complaining about? They don't have anything to eat. And so what God does is God sends them manna, a a kind of bread, every day with these instructions. Just take the, the bread that you need for the day, except for the day before the Sabbath. On the day before Sabbath, take twice as much bread so that you, can't, you don't have to gather on the Sabbath because I'm not, I'm not providing the bread on the Sabbath because that's a day of rest. So take twice as much as you need the day before. Now, some of the Hebrews, uh, they're intrigued by all this bread, and so what do they do? They take not only the bread that they'll need for Monday, but they take the bread that they'll need for Tuesday too. And those of you who remember, what happens when they wake up Tuesday morning? The bread has all gone bad. The maggots are eating the bread. This is, this is a sign for the people that God is our daily provision. If God said, I'll take care of your needs on Monday, and then I'll take care of your needs on Tuesday, and then I'll take care of your needs on Wednesday, God means what God says. So what's that a sign of? Is it a sign that maybe the Hebrews just want to be prepared, that they want to make sure that their, <coughs> that their uh, uh, 401ks are, in, or, or, are intact? <coughs> or is it an example, <coughs> excuse me, that they just simply are not convinced of God's faithfulness. And is perhaps the reason that they're not convinced of God's faithfulness is that they know their own shortcomings. They know their own faithlessness. I think this is important. And I think what Satan is saying to Jesus is this. You know what you're going to have to do. And I know what you're going to have to do. Satan has been in the pavilions of heaven. He's walked with the counsel of God. And he knows the plan that's ahead. And Satan is asking Jesus Christ, you really want to sacrifice yourself for these people? Now, those of you who have military background, you've heard the stories. Well, all of us. You don't need to have a military background. You've heard the stories of a platoon of of soldiers and they're out on patrol and suddenly a grenade falls and what's one of the soldiers do? They throw themselves down the grenade to save the men in the platoon. But they've been been through training together. They've been through war together. They've been through all the problems of together. They are comrades at arms. They are people who would give their lives for one another. We understand that. As heroic as it is, we understand that. We would think that most of us might do the same thing. We know, for those of us who have had children or who are madly in love with our spouse, I don't know about those of you who aren't madly in love with your spouse, but if you're mad, you would sacrifice your life for the people you love. But this is the example. This is what Satan is saying. 
Satan is saying this. Say you're in a POW camp, and you're being surrounded by your captors, your enemy, and somebody throws a grenade. Would you throw yourself on the grenade then? Because that's what Jesus is going to do. He's getting ready to throw himself on the grenade to protect those who refuse to follow his father. Those who are not worthy to be called a friend. I told you this is a hard season. The devil then takes Jesus and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all of the kingdoms of the world and their authority and their glory, they've been given to me. Now, first of all, is that true? No, that's not true. But if you bow down, I'll give you all of the authority and glory of these kingdoms. I think the temptation here for Jesus that Satan is trying, that the devil is trying to, to, to whisper into Jesus' ears is to worship him, Satan reminds Jesus of human short-sightedness. Now let me ask you a couple questions. Let's pretend this is a Sunday school class and we're talking to each other. What do you want in a leader? What do you want in a leader? Come on, yell it out. Creativity. What else? An example. What else? Service. What else? Integrity. What else? What? Vision. Great. Anything else? Charisma. I'm starting to get nervous here, guys. I don't know if I want to be the... <laughs> Whew, that's a tall order. Isn't that wonderful? I believe that that's what you think should be in a leader. And you know what? I intellectually agree with you. I think all of those things are key to what we know to be a good leader. But I'm going to suggest something to you. I think what most of us want in leaders is for the leader to do what we want to do. I always like to listen for the hmms. <laughs> I, I've been doing ministry for over 25 years, and you know my favorite line that I love? People come up to me and they say, Pastor Ike, you're the leader. Well, I'm so glad to have you as a leader, and here's what you should do. <laughs> I never get tired of it. I appreciate your laughter. It helps lighten my mood a little bit. Because, frankly, sometimes I get a little sick of hearing it. Because the truth is, is that most of us love leaders until they do something we don't want. Or something we don't agree with. Or something that we perceive as hurtful to us. Whether or not it's the best for the greater good. I think that most of us consider those same sorts of issues when we look at God as our king. We're good with, with saying God is our king when we're getting what we want. But as soon as we're not getting what we want, suddenly we're like, Lord, are you not king of my life? Lord, do you not love me? Lord, why are you not blessing me? We don't do this just with human leaders. We do this with spiritual leaders as well. And here's the painful thing that you and I need to hear. Satan gives us everything we want. He fulfills the desires of our flesh, however ungodly they may be. He gives us a false hope of power and of glory. And he tells us that we can have everything that we want as long as we worship him. Here's a painful question. 
This is Lent. There's going to be lots of painful questions. Are you worshiping the devil? Now, I'm not talking about having an altar in your home with black cats and chicken heads. I'm talking about with your life. Are you pursuing the things of God? Are we pursuing the things of God? Or are we pursuing the things of the evil one? You see, what Satan was saying to Jesus is, listen, listen, Jesus, you obviously don't get it. You don't understand how all this works. I can tell you, because I have been dealing with these human beings. I know what they want. And when you give them what they want, they will worship you. But I can tell you that the gifts that the powers of darkness have for you in the end are not gifts that you want. They revel in your brokenness. They celebrate in your fear. They rejoice in your anger. They cheer when we backbite and cut one another down and view everyone else as the enemy to what we want. They love brokenness. They love hate. They love spite. They love our insatiable hunger for power and wealth. And Jesus says, Jesus says to him, You shall worship only God. Well, the devil's 0 for 2 now, and so he takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And at the temple pinnacle, he says to Jesus, if you'll throw yourself off the temple, the Bible says, just because somebody says the Bible says, you need to still pay attention. Because even the devil says, the Bible says. And Jesus hears these subtle suggestions by the devil. And he says to the devil, you shall not Put the Lord your God to the test. Now, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, you'll see where that quote is mentioned in the Old Testament. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, that quote is referencing an event that is recorded in Exodus chapter 17. So if you take a note, you can write that down. Deuteronomy 6.16, and then Exodus 17, it's verse 7, actually. Now, one of the reasons I like Matthew's version, at least when it comes to putting together a sermon, is because it it seems to flow better. But Luke puts this at the end, and it's kind of unsettling, because this text is in response to another moment when the Hebrew people were complaining. Because the Hebrew people complained first because of no bread, and at this point in their journey, they're complaining that they have no water. And this event occurs at something called the Spring of Meribah. And at this exchange of the people complaining, well, you've given us bread, but you haven't given us anything to drink, God says through his servant Moses, you are testing me. Why are you testing me? Again, an example of whether or not God will provide the provisions that he promised that he'll provide. But why do people complain? Why do you complain? Why do I complain? Particularly about things like bread and water. Is it rooted in fear? 
Is it rooted in this idea that we ask ourselves, is God really for us? It's easy to follow God when everything is going our way. I wonder, I just wonder, if the reason Satan is whispering these words into the ears of Jesus is because he's trying to remind Jesus of what he'll have to endure. His own fears. The Bible tells us that Jesus did not want to go to the cross. As a matter of fact, his last prayer to his father was this. If this cup can pass before me, let it be so. But not my will be done, but thine. Now, a lot of us have fear in our life. But let me suggest this to you. If God the Father would not spare God the Son the cruelty of the cross, why should we expect that we somehow should be called to avoid pain in our life? Now, this is a struggling theme through Lent. We're going to be talking about it in the weeks to come, the struggle of suffering. What does it mean to suffer? Why is it important? How can suffering be redemptive? How can suffering be life-giving? Those are things that don't make sense in our, in our mind because the culture tells us, listen, what makes you successful is the absence of fear. What makes you successful is the presence of material goods. What makes you successful is power and prestige and prominence. But our faith teaches us that what is true with a capital T in our life isn't power and victory, but suffering and sacrifice. Because it's something that our Lord did for us. You see, this is why this story is not for me and you. This is why this story helps us to see into the heart of Jesus. This Son of God, this God the Son, knew he was coming to save a people who did nothing but complain. He knew he was coming to suffer and die for a people who refused to place him in his proper place in the throne of our hearts. He knew he was coming to face the fear of the cross for a people who are so prone, who are so prone to forget. Now the Bible talks about time in two different ways. It has two words in the original language for time. One of those words is the word chronos. Those of you who know Greek mythology may remember the, the Greek god Kronos, the father of time. Kronos means time. It's, you know, uh, we lost an hour of sleep last night. That's a Kronos. It's a designated time. Church starts at this, worship starts at this time. That, that's a Kronos time. Uh, it's something that we in the Western world, we revolve around. We have on our phones, on our watches, on our computers. We always want to keep track of the chronos. But the Bible is interested is whether or not you're keeping track of the other kind of time called kairos. K-A-I-R-O-S. 
This is actually a picture of the, of the uh, uh, Armageddon clock. And this is the kind of time of Kairos. Uh, it, it is a general time, sort of like what you say to your sons when you say, hey, it's time for you to grow up. Or if you're a grandparent, when you say to your children, isn't it time for you all to be having kids? And the Bible uses this time, and perhaps the greatest story in the Bible about this issue of time is found in the book of Acts, where in the book of Acts, Paul finds himself before the governor Felix. And I listed this text in your notes. It's from Acts chapter 24. But I want you to pay specific attention to verse 25 of Acts chapter 24 when you go back and study it on your own this week. Because after Paul has shared the gospel with Felix, this man of power, this man of prestige, this man who other people fear, isn't that what you want in life? Isn't that what the culture tells us that we should want in life? The Bible says, Luke, the physician, I picked this specifically because the same guy that wrote the gospel of Luke wrote the book of Acts, and it says this, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, man, I could preach a whole sermon just on that phrase. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now that word opportunity is the word kairos. Until I get a time to think about what you have said. Now you know why this verse frightens me? Because I have heard this verse dozens if not hundreds of times when I've shared the gospel with people. You probably have heard it too. Well, I think I have time before I have to make a decision about Jesus. Maybe if this came at a different time in my life, I would be receptive. You know what that really means? You know what Felix was really saying? And you know what grieves me? is because what Felix was saying was, no. I don't want it. Paul goes on. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, he says, Behold, now, the chronos, now, chronos, is the favorable time, kairos. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. In just a little while, we're going to invite you to this table. After the service, I pray that if there's someone here today that realized that this Kronos was the Kairos, that this time was the time to receive Christ into your life, I hope this message today helps you begin Lent to think about what it was that Jesus was really coming to do and that this story is not about me it's not about you it's about Jesus what is God inviting you to lay down in order to be made whole not coffee not sweets what is God calling you in your life your pursuit of culture, your pursuit of popularity, your pursuit of power, to lay that down so God can make you
you whole. Merciful God, you persist in inviting us in the relationship with you. You pursue us. And the faster we run, the harder you pursue. Lord, may this season of Lent allow us to look into our own hearts and see what it is we have to get out of the way. What is it that we have to invite you to remove from our life so you can make us whole? Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that even in our unworthiness, you came anyway. And even in our anger and our refusal to submit, you love us as our Lord anyway. Thank you. When we have tried to save ourselves, you have said, it is I who will save you, my son and my daughter. In your name, Jesus Christ, we pray. The church said,